0: Families of Israeli hostages held by Hamas marched from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem to demand that the government do more to free them. For Saturday, November 18th, it's All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Scott Detrow. Coming up, after a leaked tape from the Georgia election interference case against former President Trump. He said, the boss is not going
1: to leave under any circumstances. We are just going to stay in power. And I said to him, well, it doesn't quite work that way, you realize. And he said, we don't
0: care. We'll look at what it means for the defense and the prosecution. And in Congress, a fight over immigration could hold up funding for Ukraine. Also ahead, a search for lessons from America's most expensive highway project, Boston's infamous Big Dig. And we'll stuff you up with some turkey roasting tips.
2: The big day comes and you roast it.
0: If only it were that simple. First News.
2: Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Janine Herbst. Gaza health officials say the Palestinian death toll since October 7th is now 11,800 and that Israeli bombardment killed thousands of civilians in the parts of the Gaza Strip that Israel ordered them to flee to. NPR's Ruth Sherlock reports on information gathered by NPR through satellite data and expert analysis.
3: Expert analysis shows Israel ordered civilians to, quote, evacuate to central and southern parts of the Gaza Strip only to then step up its aerial attacks there. The latest analysis of imagery from the European Space Agency's Sentinel-1 satellite shows over 10,000 buildings are likely to have been damaged or destroyed by airstrikes in these areas. Experts say 94% of the destruction occurred after Israel told civilians to evacuate to these areas on October 13. The United Nations Humanitarian Affairs Office says more than 3,600 people were killed in these areas. That's one third of the war's death toll in Gaza, as tallied by the Gaza Ministry of Health. Ruth Sherlock, NPR News.
2: Lawmakers in Tennessee are calling on the state's Department of Children's Services to answer for problems at a detention center where minors were illegally secluded. Paige Flager of Member Station WPLN reports the agency's inspectors had been documenting violations for years.
4: An investigation from WPLN and ProPublica found that children at a detention center in Knoxville were being punished by being locked alone in a cell in violation of state law and policies. A letter signed by 14 Democratic Tennessee lawmakers calls the findings alarming and characterized comments by the facility's longtime superintendent, Richard L. Bean, as creating quote, a culture of lawlessness. The Tennessee Department of Children's Services says its leadership is already taking urgent steps to address concerns. Officials at the facility have not yet responded to a request for comment. For NPR News, I'm Paige Flager in Nashville.
2: SpaceX launched the largest rocket ever built this morning, and Pierce Jeff Rumfield reports it went smoothly until it lost contact with the spacecraft.
5: The massive rocket called Starship rumbled off its pad shortly after dawn. It climbed into the sky using 33 powerful engines, but then as it neared the end of its flight into space, the company lost contact. We have lost the data from the second stage. SpaceX says it believes Starship automatically self-destructed due to a problem on board. This was only the rocket's second test, and getting as far as it did is a win for SpaceX, but Starship has a lot further to go. The company's founder, Elon Musk, dreams it will someday carry the first humans to Mars. Jeff Brumfield, NPR News.
2: And you're listening to NPR News from Washington.
6: This is ninety point nine WBUR. I'm Susan Levy in Boston. Homeless families face additional struggles now that the Massachusetts shelter system is full and families are being placed on a wait list. Donna Matria is the triage team manager at the nonprofit La Collaborativa. She says the families locked out of the system are traumatized.
2: Hearing them cry and like be so stressed out and there's nothing. There's no comfort that we can provide them.
6: Matria says lawmakers and the state should have created a safe place for waitlisted families to stay. A spokesperson for the state agency overseeing the shelter system says it's working with United Way to set up overflow shelters. The author of The Decision That Legalized Same-Sex Marriage in Massachusetts 20 Years Ago Today is concerned about the direction of the U.S. Supreme Court. Former Chief Justice of the State Supreme Court, Margaret Marshall, cites last year's Supreme Court decision to end the constitutional right to abortion. WBUR's Rob Lane reports.
4: Marshall
0: says she's keeping a close eye on the U.S. Supreme Court. She points to the concurring opinion Justice Clarence Thomas wrote in last year's Dobbs abortion case in which Thomas prodded the court to revisit previous decisions that guaranteed certain gay rights and access to contraception. Marshall spoke with WBUR's Radio Boston.
6: What we see is a nibbling, nibbling, nibbling around at the edges. I think it is very problematic.
0: Marshall said that people in Massachusetts should largely be sheltered from future federal rulings on civil rights because it's actually the Massachusetts Constitution that largely informs what rights residents of the Commonwealth have. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Rob Lane.
6: There are reports that Bruins veteran forward Milan Lucic was arrested last night involving domestic violence allegations. The team announced that he is taking an indefinite leave of absence. The Bruins host the Canadiens at the Garden tonight and in college football, Harvard lost to Yale today in New Haven, 23-18. 45 degrees at 5.06, clear tonight, a low in the mid-30s. Sun tomorrow, low 50s, mostly sunny on Monday, low 40s, Tuesday, mid-40s.
2: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Wallace Foundation, working to develop and share practices that can improve learning and enrichment for young people and the vitality of the arts for everyone. Ideas and information at wallacefoundation.org.
0: This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Scott Detrow. The Palestinian Ministry of Health says more than 11,800 Palestinians have now been killed in Gaza. And many of them were killed in South Gaza, where Israel told people to go. And in Israel today, families of the more than 200 hostages taken by Hamas during its deadly October 7th attack concluded a march across the country from Tel Aviv to the prime minister's office in Jerusalem. The families are demanding that they be allowed to meet with the war cabinet to find out what progress has been made to release the hostages. PRS Peter Kenyon joins us now from Jerusalem. Hey, Peter. Hi, Scott. This sounds like a very emotional, very intense march. What can you tell us about it?
7: Well, yes, it was thousands of people. Exactly how many thousands? I'm not sure. Some called it tens of thousands, but a large crowd in any event. They made the trek from Tel Aviv with several stops along the way. Finally today, uh, climbing the hill that leads up to Jerusalem, uh, a lot of people seemed quite emotional, and many of them actually didn't want to talk about their own family or the people they knew who may have been abducted by Hamas. I I almost got the impression they didn't want to put those names out in the public sphere any more than they already are. Uh, There are posters showing the faces of these abductees all over Israel. But it was, yes, a strong turnout.
0: That makes sense. But aside from that, what did you hear from participants at the rally?
7: Well, it was organized by a group called the Hostages and Missing Families Forum. And the spokesperson for the group got the crowd going when he pushed the government of Benjamin Netanyahu to do more to bring the hostages home. Now, here's a bit of what he said. <laughs> Now what he's saying there is, for the last few days, for five days, the families have been marching to ask Bibi Netanyahu, please, we want a meeting with you now. Say it so he can hear all of you, at which point the crowd begins chanting, now, now, now. (laughs) And there was a government response. Rather quickly, Prime Minister Netanyahu announced he would make sure that family representatives do get a meeting on Monday with the War Cabinet. Now, the underlying message here is these families, they don't think the government's made recovering the hostages a high enough priority as the military keeps going after Hamas fighters in Gaza. And there really has been limited information about the talks on hostages. It's not the kind of thing you can really talk about in public. We know Qatar has been involved. Uh, But for the families, this lack of information is deeply frustrating. And remember, it comes on top of the anger at the government for its failure to anticipate and protect against this attack, which was not just rocket fire, but of course a ground assault by Hamas on Israeli civilians, the worst attack in the state of Israel's history.
0: We are now six weeks into this conflict, six weeks since October 7th. What do we know about where it may be headed next?
7: Well, we know it's been violent and could get more so. According to Gaza health officials, witness accounts, satellite data, uh, and expert evaluation, Palestinians have moved to the southern Gaza Strip on Israeli orders only to find Israeli airstrikes following them south. Now, as far as Israeli hawks are concerned, that's fine. The military should conduct a repeat of what Palestinians call the Nakba, or catastrophe, after the 1948 war. And that led to the establishment of the State of Israel and the dispossession and displacement of hundreds of thousands of Palestinians, many of whom wound up in the Gaza Strip. Israeli cabinet minister Avi Dichter, for one, is calling for the, quote, Gaza Nakba 2023. And there's some on the far right who just want to ship the Gazans out, send them to Egypt or even to Europe. So far, no country's volunteered to take them in. Mm-hmm. And I have spoken with military and political analysts. Uh, they told me that the basic Israeli goals, rendering Hamas unable to govern and incapable of carrying out another attack like the one on October 7th, are good goals. But they're not seeing much detail regarding how that will not only be accomplished, but maintained well into the future. That's NPR's
0: Peter Kenyon in Jerusalem. Thank you. Thank
7: you, Scott. It's
0: time for Trump's trial.
7: This is a persecution. Felony violations. We need one more indictment.
2: Criminal conspiracy.
7: To close out this election. Innocent until proven guilty
0: in a court of law. Our weekly take on the latest developments in the multiple cases former President Donald Trump is facing, all while he runs for president again. The most interesting developments this week happened in Georgia, where Trump and several others are facing multiple charges tied to their efforts to overturn the 2020 election. Four of those defendants have taken plea deals already, and those plea deals require them to cooperate with the prosecution. As part of that cooperation, the defendants sat down for lengthy interviews with the prosecutors to tell them what they know. And this week, several of those interviews, including this one of Trump lawyer Jenna Ellis, were leaked to ABC News.
8: He said the boss
1: uh, is not going to leave under any circumstances. We are just going to stay in power. And I said to him, well, it doesn't quite work that way, you realize. And he said, we don't care.
0: To talk about all of this, we are joined again this week by senior political editor and correspondent, Domenico Montanaro. Hey, Domenico. Hey. And Melissa Murray, a lawyer and law professor at NYU and co-author of the upcoming book, The Trump Indictments. Thanks for being here, Melissa.
9: Thanks for having me.
0: So, Domenico, what were the main headlines from these tapes?
10: Well, seeing Jenna Ellis sort of flip on Trump was really notable um, and saying that she'd heard from one of Trump's aides, uh, Dan Scavino, that the boss isn't going to leave office. Really kind of a fascinating uh, thing to show sort of Trump's state of mind and how much he really wanted to stay in power.
0: Yeah. But, uh, Melissa, Trump's legal team was pretty quick to, to respond to that saying, who cares what this aide said, in a sense, because for all the other things that happened, Trump did leave office. He didn't hold himself up on the White House. He didn't try to remain president.
9: No, that's right. And you can imagine what the response to this would be at trial, Um, you know, one to discredit Jenna Ellis as someone who has a real incentive to play nice with the prosecution, but also someone who may not actually be that truthful herself. She was formerly a co-defendant. They will also, I think, note that this was a statement that Jenna Ellis heard from someone else, Dan Scavino. She did not hear this from Trump himself. So it doesn't actually go to provide clear evidence of Trump's own mindset with regard to staying in power or leaving peacefully. And so in that sense, it's kind of a mixed bag. Um, It really does shed some light on all of the events that are alleged in the Georgia indictment, but it is certainly not a smoking gun or a silver bullet for the prosecution. Mm -hmm.
0: Well, it's interesting, but maybe it's not quite what it seemed, right? It's a, it's, 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 it's a hearsay conversation with an aide who has a Suspect track record.
10: (laughs) Well, I mean, I think that it's there's a huge difference between an actual court and a court of public opinion and how these things can be framed and looked. But the thing that was interesting to me is, it's again, you have Jenna Ellis, who was a lawyer who was close to Trump, who was involved in this process, who's flipped. And that's part of what you want to do in a RICO case is sort of make your way up the pyramid. And it really got personal and nasty when it comes to the Trump loyalists and Jenna Ellis, because Laura Loomer, who's close to Trump, failed Florida congressional candidate conspiracy theorist called Jenna Ellis a waste of space and a fake Christian. Ellis responded back saying, Oh, no mention of Trump Jr.'s divorce. I mean, this got really, really personal. Yeah.
9: It did devolve very quickly. Um, I I will say, for my part, the most interesting and honestly um, just really like alarming confession in this proffer was when Sidley Powell admitted that she didn't really know a lot about election law. And that actually was hilarious to me. I mean, girl, what? Uh, You've been talking about (laughs) the election and election fraud for months. You gave a whole press conference about this and then come to find out you actually don't know anything about it is,
10: election law it is amazing to me how the threat of jail time sort of breaks the hypnosis and seems like a <laughs> shot of truth serum for a lot of people i mean this is also the legal team just, just to say when you point that out that as far as
0: we can tell possibly mixed up the four seasons hotel with four seasons total landscaping so you a know
9: elite legal strike <laughs> force exactly
0: <laughs> uh now i'm going to go down to washington and we're going to talk a little bit about the federal january 6th case our uh, national justice correspondent, Carrie Johnson, has been reporting on the case this week. And the fact that uh, Trump's legal team had requested to narrow references uh, and strike references to the violence at the Capitol on January 6th. But the judge in that case, Tanya Chutkin, rejected that motion late last night. Uh, Melissa, this is interesting here because Jack Smith, the special counsel, made a choice not to file insurrection or incitement charges tied to the violence of that day, right? But regardless, what happened on January 6th is a key part of his case.
9: That's right. So I think a big part of why there are mentions of the insurrection at the Capitol and why the prosecution is at great pains to keep those mentions available for trial is because they want to make the connection that We have other defendants who have been successfully prosecuted for this crime, the January 6th rioters, and this Mm -hmm. individual is also someone who should also be successfully prosecuted on this charge, this conspiracy to obstruct official proceedings. So I think that's a big reason why. I also think it's why the Trump team does not want it in. It's highly prejudicial to associate Donald Trump with the violence that so many Americans saw play out on their television screens on January 6th. They don't want any part of it, but unfortunately, it seems like it's going to be a very big part of it.
10: And politically, really interesting that the Trump team is sort of pushing to get the D.C. proceedings on camera. Because clearly Trump wants to be able to make a political case to people going forward. We also saw uh, yeah. a whole bunch of media organizations join in because, of course, they want to put that on television. Mm-hmm. Uh, a yeah. little bit different uh, incentive for that. But clearly we're seeing Trump playing this two-sided thing where he's yeah. he has to talk in court and try to win in court, but also try to win in public opinion.
0: He did waive his initial court appearance in Georgia where, where court hearings are televised. And I thought that was that was surprising when that happened this summer, but it seems like a different course here saying, no, we want all of this on television.
10: Yeah. And I mean, the timing of all of this, you know, I mean, when are all of these cases going to actually be? And we saw in Georgia, August 5th is one place where they're trying to ask for that time to be, which would be right in the middle of a campaign. And we talk about the collision between politics and the legal calendar. Um, the Trump team was saying this is completely politically motivated because it's right smack in the middle of when his uh, when the when the general election would be happening. Right now, Trump's got a huge cushion in this primary, so he can deal with these legal obstacles. Very different when you're talking about how swing voters might view this in a general election.
7: Yeah,
0: that was NPR's senior political editor and correspondent Domenico Matanaro, as well as NYU law professor Melissa Murray. Thanks to both of you. You're welcome. Thank you you're listening to all things considered from npr news
6: and coming up at six on wbur the moth radio hour it runs until eight
7: we're funded by you our listeners and by the lyric stage with ken ludwig's the games afoot this comedy mystery makes a memorable multi-generational holiday outing through December 17th, lyricstage.com.
6: WBUR occasionally offers you the opportunity to win prizes in conjunction with our fundraising efforts. A pledge is not required to win a prize. Employees of WBUR and associated sweepstakes entities are not eligible for any drawings or contests. For complete rules, go to WBUR.org. 43 degrees at 518, clear tonight, a low in the mid-30s, sun tomorrow, low 50s, and mostly sunny on Monday low 40s. Stay with us.
7: WBUR supporters include Lauren Holleran with Gibson Sotheby's International Realty in Cambridge, real estate brokerage that is grounded in data and committed to thoughtful design. LaurenHolleran.com.
2: I'm Janine Herbst with these headlines. Gaza health officials say the death toll since October 7th now stands at more than 11,800. This as patients, staff, and displaced people left Gaza's largest hospital today. Witnesses say it was chaotic, with many people panicking. Israeli forces remained at a hospital along with health workers to care for those too sick to leave. Lawmakers in Tennessee are calling on the state's Department of Children's Services to answer for problems at a detention center where minors were illegally secluded. And SpaceX launched its giant new rocket Starship today, but explosions ended the company's second unmanned test flight. I'm Janine Herbst, NPR News.
8: Support for NPR comes from this station. And from SmartMouth, committed to the prevention of bad breath for 24 hours with two rinses a day, SmartMouth mouthwash can be found nationwide at drugstores, grocery stores, and supercenters or at smartmouth.com. From Luminescence Foundation, dedicated to shedding light on neurological research focused on Alzheimer's and Parkinson's diseases and supporting land conservation initiatives. And from the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, Helping NPR advance journalistic excellence in the digital age.
0: You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Scott Detrow. It's the weekend before Thanksgiving, but there's a good chance your holidays are already underway, and that you are off to, or maybe hosting, a friend's giving this weekend. This is the increasingly trendy and widespread alt holiday meal and gathering right around Thanksgiving where we can eat and drink and bask in the glow of our closest friends, our so-called chosen family, if you will. The balm to any buildup of holiday stress.
4: Happy Friendsgiving! <laughs> Guys,
6: let's
1: go around a shirt we're grateful for. I'll start.
6: Every time I'm in one with a group of like 10 to 12 people, it inevitably goes
1: The food was not ready. When you host and you cook for your guests, there was not even a peep to eat. let <laughs> And I'm grateful that your boyfriend is my ex boyfriend? Yay! Let's eat.
0: It turns out that there is just as much stress within our social circles, and on a holiday designed to bring people together, a lot of drama ends up on the table. To talk about this, we call Danielle Byard Jackson, friendship coach and host of the podcast Friend Forward. Hey, Danielle.
1: Hello. How are you?
0: Is it fair to say that most people think about relationships with friends as, generally speaking? being less stressful than relationships with family
1: they do and the research does you know support that having friendships does offer a certain kind of ease that we might not get from our familial or professional relationships so that makes sense
0: do you think that that there is something to the fact that gathering with with your closest friends does have its stress points as well does have its dynamics as well sometimes
1: oh sure you know having friends is not a guarantee that we're not going to experience stress right any relationship offers some sense of stress but i think anytime we're trying to host something we're bringing people together during a specific time. I think it comes with certain natural stressors.
0: Let's do some practical advice here if that works for you.
1: Yeah, let's do it.
0: Okay. Let's think about somebody who's hosting one of these events. They made their guest list. They've sent out the invites. What are some ways to make their friends feel calm and welcome and happy? And I think just as importantly, what are some ways that you as the host can let yourself relax and actually enjoy your gathering?
1: So yeah, it's very important that people feel welcome when they attend. We want them to feel comfortable. We want them to feel like they have permission to eat and to talk and to move about freely. When they arrive at the door, is someone there to say, you know, hey, welcome, and to begin helping them facilitate connections with other attendees. So what can you prep beforehand to make you more available to engage with your guests and to reduce the stress that you have of flittering about uh, once. The event is underway. Another thing you can do, depending on the size of the event, is: Are there any things you can do prior to to help people connect before they arrive? So, if you're having, you know, a small gathering of four to five people, can you put them in a WhatsApp group and have them start sharing funny memes or having them share what they're going to contribute if you're doing a potluck style to get people comfortable and and building some kind of rapport before they arrive? And then, you know, it also helps sometimes too. And this might sound a little counterintuitive because we want to be chill hosts. We want to go with the flow. But it's sometimes helpful to have structure and to have a firm duration, which I know feels like we're being uptight. But sometimes it (laughs) eases our anxiety if we know that, hey, this is a a two and a half hour event. Or if we know that, hey, we're having dinner at this time, and then we're going to play a game, you know, and then we're going to, you know, have a warm exit.
0: I really appreciate you saying that because when I host people, often I am the first one to get tired and get ready to end the night. <laughs> and it's awkward and hard to say like, okay, that's great. I want to go to sleep
11: now. Yes. You know?
1: Yes. I feel that so much. And again, I know sometimes we're like, oh, I people are adults. I'll let them do their thing. But people actually take comfort in knowing there's some kind of program. There's some kind of, you know, plan. Um, and they can just trust you to establish that. And they can relax and follow along.
0: Another big possible tension point, and this is something that does have a lot of overlap with traditional family gatherings. And that is the fact that you almost certainly like your friends, right? Because that's why they're your friends. But maybe you don't like your friend's friend. Maybe you don't like your friend's new boyfriend or girlfriend. What are some general tips to help you Steal yourself to get along with this person that you just don't click
1: with? Well, first of all, this is where having that tight duration for the event comes in handy because you don't have to deal with that all day if they're people who are kind of ridiculous. But it might be nice to set expectations. So if you know that somebody has a certain personality type, um, if you know you have somebody who dominates the conversation, well, how can you front load the experience by perhaps having, you know, conversation cards at dinner and everybody pulls a card and answers their question. Um, and then also, you know, it's, it's tricky sometimes because whenever you're hosting something, that's where some etiquette things come into play as well because let's say that you don't like your friend's boyfriend but that person is a guest in your home you know kind of balancing the expectations between i'm hanging with friends and i'm being a good host and kind of seeing where that line needs to be erected
0: and now i want to ask about something that is the painful side of this what if you don't have to prep for going to or hosting a friend's giving because your friends organized a friend's giving And you were not invited to it. I mean, that is a universal experience in one way or another that a lot of people deal with at some point. And it stinks around the holidays. Like, what what can you do to make that uh, feel a little bit better?
1: Okay this is a rough one. I know this is tough. You know, being rejected is, is painful. The research tells us that, uh, you know, social rejection lights up the same area of our brain as when we are, you know, physically harmed, but I have a couple thoughts on this. The first is be careful of the meaning and intention you often assign to that, because I see people going into thought processes like they're not my real friends, or I guess they don't like me. And we really internalize that we kind of extrapolate, you know, when people make invitations, sometimes they're limited as to how many people they can invite. Sometimes they assume you wouldn't be interested. Sometimes they assume you already have plans because you look like a really social person. Um, Sometimes it's for a certain group. So maybe they're hosting Friendsgiving for their other couple friends or their church friends. And so there are a lot of other things at play whenever people are hosting a gathering. And so be very careful about personalizing it or assuming that, you know, it reveals these people's true feelings about you as a Mm -hmm. friend. So that's, that's the first thing, because I, I don't want us to end those friendships or to feel badly about ourselves because we weren't invited the second thing to keep in mind is you know you be a connector you know if you see other people hosting things and you're sitting kind of passively waiting for somebody to to bring you in sure that feels very good and and very affirming right to to have that invitation but can you feel empowered to be the connector? Can you host a small gathering for others who you know might be long distance from family and they can't afford to see them or coworkers who seem kind of cool and maybe you guys have never explored friendship territory, but you know that they're a good company. So how can you take matters into your own hands and figure out ways that you can bring people to your table?
0: What if, and this is hypothetical, what if your very good friends have invited you to a friend's giving? but they scheduled it at the exact time that your radio show starts and it's happening right now as the segment is airing. I don't know who that could happen yeah. to, but a very specific piece of advice I thought you might be able to help me with.
1: Yeah. So great hypothetical question here. If you have people who invite you and you can't make it or it conflicts with another time, there are ways to be involved, even though you can't show up. So one, ask them how long it's going to be. And can you show up for a portion of it instead of the full thing and give them a heads up? Hey, I can't make it. But you know, when are things wrapping up? I want to make sure I can at least pop in and say hello. Or can you do something where you send a gift or you send addition your behalf. I mean, and depending on who's there, can you be playful? Can you, you know, send a video that you ask them to play at the table so it feels like you're there. So people just want to know that you appreciate them and you see them. So if you're unable to attend, what is a gesture that you can offer that shows that you care and you appreciate the invite?
0: I'll pass that along to the person I know dealing with that
12: particular (laughs) challenge.
1: I
0: mean overall do you see this friends giving trend as a positive thing or something that's just kind of creating one more hurdle in the holiday gauntlet?
1: I I love the idea of friendsgiving so much because in this ongoing conversation around chosen family, I think it helps us to deconstruct certain ideas we have of what the holidays ought to look like.
0: You know, you could even erase the hard lines. I'm thinking back. One thing my my parents always did when I was little was that they they would invite the person who who didn't have family nearby, or you know, for one reason or another was going to be by themselves, and kind of this mash of friends and family was always some of the the holidays that I. I remember the most fondly.
1: Yeah. And I, and again, I think that it's so helpful to kind of expand your idea of what Friendsgiving and Thanksgiving can look like. Anybody whose company you enjoy, the relationship offers value to your life. This is a a moment to have a market occasion, to sit them down, to feed them, which is a very intimate thing. And to say, you know, I value you and to make, you know, these connections around the holidays. And so I think as we have these conversations around what chosen family is, um, Friendsgiving becomes something that I know a lot of us are really looking forward to.
0: Are you going to any?
1: I'm going to too. Yes. Thank you very much.
0: <laughs> are you bringing a dish or what's your plan here
1: I am totally bringing a dish my mom always raised me you don't show up with empty hands so and also to feel like I'm I'm contributing and it's my way of saying thank you so I'm all about Friendsgiving
0: that is friendship coach Danielle Byer Jackson who's bringing a dish to Friendsgiving thanks so much for talking to us thank you for having me Washington heaved a sigh of relief after Congress passed a spending plan to keep the federal government open through the holidays but it'll be a short-lived break new anxieties are already brewing over what was left out of the plan, namely, new funding for Ukraine. As NPR's Franco Ordonez reports, there are concerns that deep-rooted divisions over immigration could upend funding for the war there, as well as other national security priorities for the Biden White House.
5: Senator Graham. Over the last two decades, Senator Lindsey Graham has been part of several failed efforts to pass meaningful changes to the US immigration system. <laughs> Those include bipartisan efforts, ones with presidential support. Over and over, they all collapsed. I know where the bodies are buried and the sweet spots are. But he sees a path this time in the interest of helping Ukraine, and provided it's attached to a more narrowly focused plan on border security. That's the only path. If you want to help Ukraine, which I do, we've got to secure our border. President Biden has asked lawmakers for billions in extra funding for Israel, Ukraine, and countering China and the Indo-Pacific. There is broad agreement over the funding for Israel, but the money for Ukraine is losing Republican support. To sweeten the deal, Biden also included $14 billion for the border, including money for new technology and to hire thousands of new border agents and asylum officers. But that's not enough for some Republicans who are threatening to withhold Ukraine funding unless there are more structural changes to border policy.
7: As everyone knows, the biggest holdup right now is Republicans' insistence that they'll only approve Ukraine aid in exchange for immigration items.
5: That's Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer. He says Democrats are willing to work in good faith, but warns Republicans against trying to push through one-sided proposals.
7: Linking any of these bipartisan issues to extremist positions to extremist poison pills on immigration or any other issue would be a colossal blunder.
5: Helping lead the negotiations for the Democrats is Senator Michael Bennett of Colorado. He says Congress should be supporting Ukraine on its own merits, but that he's willing to take necessary steps to ensure Russian President Vladimir Putin is not emboldened.
12: I hear my Republican colleagues say they need something on immigration, and we're going to see whether we can have a meeting of the minds.
5: Bennett was part of a group of senators in 2013 who negotiated an overhaul that would have increased border security and created a path to citizenship for millions of undocumented immigrants. The plan failed in the House. He says the country wouldn't be in this position now if they had passed those measures 10 years ago.
12: It obviously is never going to be as comprehensive as what
7: we did in 2013, but hopefully there are some
5: aspects of this that we can come to an agreement on. Senator Tom Tillis of North Carolina is helping lead the Republicans in the negotiations. He says it would be a mistake to try to revive those old talks.
7: If people want to start talking about big R immigration reform, I'm out. This is not the time to do it. It's too complex. The White House says Republicans
5: are playing politics with U.S. national security. The president's plan already includes border security, and John Kirby, a White House spokesman, says funding for Ukraine and Israel should not be held up as a result.
7: This is an urgent request.
5: Senator Tillis argues what's been proposed is not nearly enough. Republicans want tighter restrictions on asylum and bringing back some Trump-era policies like the so-called Remain in Mexico program.
7: Unless we come up with an answer, we're not gonna get support of our conference. And if we don't have support of at least uh, half of the Republican conference, just project the math on, on the House side.
5: The two sides are unlikely to come up with any answer soon, especially on such a complex issue like the border. But also, lawmakers have left Washington for the holiday meaning even small steps will have to wait until after the Thanksgiving break. Franco, Ordonez, NPR News, The Capitol.
0: A new show tells the story of how dangerous it was to be queer in Washington during the 1950s, during the so-called Lavender Scare. It's called Fellow Travelers. To hear why the show's creator wanted to explore this topic, be sure to listen to Weekend Edition Sunday tomorrow. Just ask your smart speaker to play your local NPR station or turn on your radio. This is NPR News. The public face of the AI boom is now jobless. CEO Sam Altman co-founded OpenAI, which released the powerful chatbot ChatGPT last year. It revolutionized the tech world. But late yesterday, without providing many details, the company said he'd been fired. The announcement leaves a lot of questions unanswered. NPR tech correspondent Bobby Allen is on the line to try and help us sort through some of them. Hey, Bobby. Hey, Scott. So AI and ChatGPT have gotten a lot of press, but remind us about this key person here, Sam Altman. Who is he?
13: Sure. Yeah, Sam Altman is this 38-year-old tech executive who co-founded OpenAI about eight years ago with a handful of others, including Elon Musk, actually. Um, And the idea was to create a nonprofit research lab focused on ethically developing artificial intelligence, almost like an answer to the profit-driven ethos of big tech and it remained mostly quiet until last year when AI burst onto the scene, as you mentioned, with ChatGPT. It quickly became the fastest growing app ever. It sparked debates on all sorts of industries from publishing to education to healthcare about how the technology could be harnessed to upend how we are live and work every day and you know while chat gpt became one of the most viral tech products in history sam altman was traveling around the world and talking about ai he testified before congress about the need for ai regulations he became the focal point of attacks from ai skeptics in short scott he was the most sought after and one of the most powerful
0: executives in silicon valley what do we know about why he was pushed out
13: yesterday the company's board released a statement saying altman quote was not consistently candid in his communication with the board of directors but they stopped short on giving details Sam Altman was fired immediately now this was a surprise to the company's investors employees, and even Altman himself was taken aback. You know, this all circles the question, okay, what exactly did he do wrong? And that's something we just can't answer right now, Scott. Now, I also heard from uh, the same sources that Altman and the board got into a disagreement shortly before his ouster over the balance between keeping open AI products safe and, you know, pushing them out to the public as fast as possible. In other words, you know, Sam Altman wanted to keep releasing more and more of these powerful tools, and some board members were worried that he was downplaying the risks to society. Yeah. But you know, I have not confirmed that that particular disagreement is what triggered his firing. But Scott, it's really hard to overemphasize when I say that it's the chatter of the tech industry right now.
0: I mean, any sense at this moment what this means for the future of OpenAI and ChatGPT?
13: Yeah, well, this executive Mira Murati will step up as interim CEO of the company and you know she's long been involved in the day to day operations of OpenAI. This transition, though, you know, it comes during a rocky time for open AI. It's facing a deluge of lawsuits over copyright infringement and other claims. Regulators in Washington and Europe are devising new rules about how to regulate AI and now, of course, a dramatic firing at the top as for Altman. He is one of the most well-connected tech leaders in Silicon Valley, so he is in talks already about his next moves. He even tweeted that he'll have more to say soon about what's next. One last notable thing, Scott, is, you know, even though OpenAI started as this nonprofit research lab, it's now sort of an arm of Microsoft, which has invested $13 billion into the company. But Microsoft says they are not going to back away just because Altman is gone you know, I've actually been in touch with Altman over the years, but since yesterday, he's been pretty mum. I know he has a lot going on right now, obviously. So, you know, once we figure out what really led to his firing, I will be back to fill you in.
0: All right. Look forward to it. That is NPR's Bobby Allen. Thanks a lot. Thanks, Scott. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News.
6: And it's on 90.9 WBUR. Thanks for listening. I'm Susan Levy. Stay with us at 6 for the Moth Radio Hour.
0: Turn your old vehicle into new news. Support the programs you love by donating your car or boat to WBUR. Details at WBUR.org slash cars.
6: After seeing news alerts all day, sometimes it's hard to understand the full story. Get the WBUR mobile app. We'll be there with context and perspective live. Listen anywhere on the WBUR mobile app. 43 degrees at 539, clear tonight with a low in the mid-30s, sun tomorrow, low 50s, and mostly sunny on Monday, low 40s. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by The Huntington, in a co-production with Speakeasy Stage, presents The Band's Visit, playing now through December 10th at the Huntington Theatre, huntingtontheatre.org, and Plymouth Rock Assurance, who believes auto and home insurance should be straightforward and works to assure their customers at every step. PlymouthRock.com slash WBUR.
2: I'm Janine Herbst with these headlines. President Biden says a two-state solution is the only way to ensure the long-term security of both Israel and the Palestinian people. In a Washington Post op-ed, he says it will take a commitment from all sides. At least six people are dead. Hundreds are injured after a powerful magnitude 6.7 underwater earthquake hit the southern Philippines today. Schools, shopping malls, and homes were damaged and power is out in areas. And Taylor Swift is postponing an ERA's tour concert in Rio de Janeiro today, citing extremely high temperatures after a 23-year-old fan died during last night's show. The cause of death isn't known. I'm Janine Herbst, NPR News in Washington.
8: Support for NPR comes from this station. And from FJC, a foundation of donor-advised funds working to maximize the impact of charitable giving and to create customized philanthropic solutions. Learn more at fjc.org. From the Walton Family Foundation, working to solve social and environmental problems to improve lives today and benefit future generations. More information at waltonfamilyfoundation.org. And from listeners like you, who donate to this NPR station.
0: This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Scott Detrow. If you have ever wondered why it is so difficult to build infrastructure in this country, why these projects take so much time and cost so much money, there's now a podcast that can offer some clues. It is called The Big Dig. It comes from GBH News in, yes, Boston, and it tells the story of a project that became infamous around the world for a price tag that just went up and up and up.
7: I will be really honest with you. I made up a number. I just said, I'll give you an extra billion dollars and don't come back. We're done.
0: That's Jim Carasiotis. He was one of the project's many leaders.
7: Everybody salutes. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Everything's, you know, this is wonderful. This is is good news. I made the number up. And to this day, I scratch my head. And I say to myself, this is how we run the government.
0: Ian Koss hosts The Big Dig, and he joins me now to talk about what we can learn today in this moment of infrastructure building from America's most expensive highway project. Hey Ian. Hey there. So let's go back to the beginning before the big dig became this this iconic sprawling mess, right? Like what was the original problem and what was the original goal of this project?
12: Yeah, so it begins with a highway that runs through the center of Boston. And you know, like a lot of big cities, Boston had built this elevated highway that really divided the city in half. Um, And it was clogged with traffic. It was ugly. It was noisy. It wasn't working well. And so in 1983, 40 years ago, Governor Michael Dukakis makes this big speech and announces that we're going to deal with this problem once and for all. We're going to take that highway and put it underground.
5: No one who commutes to Boston needs to be told that the central artery is a monumental problem. It is the cause of more individual headaches and more frazzled nerves than anything I can think of. It is dangerous. It is poorly designed. It is obsolete. It is ugly. It divides our capital city from its great and historic harbor and waterfront. So now is the time to fix the artery and fix it right.
12: So that's really where the story of the big dig begins with this kind of moonshot visionary idea to fix a terrible highway.
0: Okay. so. At the starting point, this makes sense, right? This is a terrible highway. Everyone wants to see it fixed. But we are now talking yeah. at a point where it became at a certain point, this this, this code word, this kind of like prime example of cost overruns and projects that never get finished. Remind us how long it actually took to complete this project. Remind us how much off track it ended up going.
12: Yeah, so just to give you some basic numbers, um, the construction itself took 16 years, right? And the costs, and these this numbers are really kind of mind blowing. I mean, the original, the earliest estimates of the cost are in the two ish billion dollar range. That grows and grows and grows for many reasons. And by the time it's done, the full budget of the project is almost $15 billion. So wow. that gives you a sense wow. of, of how it got this reputation for the cost that just kept going up.
0: And what was the point when it went from great idea to what is going on here?
12: I would say that's why I wanted to do this series, was to trace that journey and make sense of that contradiction right, between the idealism of where the project began um, and how troubled it ultimately became. Um, Because like you said, by the time this thing was in full swing, it really was the poster child of the big government boondoggle. I mean, there are congressional hearings about this when it's going on. John McCain, at one point when he was running for president, made the big dig, like one of his talking points. Um, And when you talk to the people who worked on the project, who were underground for years and years, this fact, I mean, it really haunts them or it certainly haunted them at the time. Um, there's a foreman I spoke to named Frank Martinez, who spent nine years working on one piece of this project. Um, and he told me about about how, how much it hurt to see the reputation of the project sink. You felt like the public blamed?
11: Well, the, well, the, well, the public was always finger point of anybody who worked in a big dick. I mean, we got to the point that we don't even want to wear the uh, big dick shirts because... People was always pointing at us, oh, so these are the guys that are stealing the money, you know what I mean? And us as it's a workers, we were just there doing the job. You know. And so
12: part of what I wanted to do with the series was to show how we got there, um, because it's complicated. Um, and it's not as simple as, you know, there was just one corrupt politician or one single greedy contractor who came in and ruined the whole thing. I mean, the challenges and obstacles that the Big Dig faced are really systemic challenges to the way we build infrastructure in this country. Um, And it's about kind of wonky stuff like funding and permitting and contracting and management structure. Um, And things, like I said, that are systemic to all big projects. So if you're interested in building high-speed rail or building wind farms or tearing down highways or doing anything big and ambitious, um, the Big Dig really is a great case study for understanding how hard those projects are. And of course, trillions of dollars are being spent
0: by the federal government at this moment to do just that. Though I think the Biden administration probably does not want to br- bring comparisons to the Big Dig at the moment. Um, but, but, you know, on the other hand, it got finished. It got built. The dig was completed there was this moment I was I was driving to New Hampshire for for primary coverage and I realized like, oh my gosh, I think I'm driving on the big dig. Here it is. like I mean has it has it paid off now that it is actually built, now that it is actually uh, running and has been for quite some time? Do people in Massachusetts feel
12: like this was ultimately worth it?
0: Yeah, it's it's
12: complicated and I think it it depends on your point of view. There were many people I interviewed who told me that I mean just look at what we got. You know, it restored the heart of the city. It attracted businesses and jobs. I mean, the land around this project is some of the most valuable commercial real estate in the country. If you go to downtown Boston today, I mean, it's hard to imagine the city without this project having been done, you know, with that massive highway still running through it. So I think to a lot of people, it has totally proven itself. On the other hand, did it erase traffic in Boston? No. I mean, it's still just a big investment in road and car infrastructure. Um, I remember talking with one local comedian who told me that really the whole point of the big dig was just to confuse the traffic helicopters, you know, that the TV stations run because the traffic is still there, Mm -hmm. but now you just can't see it because it's underground.
0: (laughs) (laughs) That's, That's a funny point. I mean, it does seem like the Big Dig looms over American infrastructure. It gets invoked as this cautionary tale, as we've been saying. Do you think that narrative is fair in the
12: end? I think it's simplistic, is I guess what I would say. And really, my big takeaway from studying this history is that the narrative does matter, um, that the way we talk about a project like this and the way we tell the story really does change how we think about our capacity to build something like this again, and also what the challenges for that building are. Um, So I think it's really important to look at it closely and try and understand the narrative. As I was finishing up the series, I, I got kind of a reminder of this when I took a walk through downtown Boston with Fred Salvucci, who, if you listen to the show, he's really like the originator, the architect of the project. And he told me this story while we were walking through the city, um, a story that he had heard once about the Italian mystic St. Francis, who, like Savucci, got his start as a builder.
11: God came to him in a dream and said, Francis, you have to build a church. So Francis woke up the next day and said, oh, instructions from the big guy, I have to build a church. So he began gathering stones, piling them up, digging a foundation.
12: Francis worked and worked, building the church all on his own. And when it was finally done, he laid down to rest. That night, there was a terrible thunderstorm. The church was struck by lightning and destroyed. But Francis once again saw God in his dream.
11: What, what is, what's this weird joke? I do what you tell me, I work in the hot sun, I build your church, and you destroy it with an electric storm, like, all these months of work, poof, it's all gone. And uh, God, God sends to Francis, no, no, the church that you have to build is not a church of stones. You have to build a church in the hearts and the minds of the people. That's the only church that matters and will last.
12: And that's one of the questions I really try to sit with in the series is not just what this project built in stone, but ultimately what it built in our hearts and minds.
0: That is Ian Koss. Ian, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. You can hear the whole story on the podcast, The Big Dig, from GBH News. You can find it on the NPR One app, gbhnews.org slash The Big Dig, or wherever you get your podcasts. There's a lot of lore out there about how hard it is to make a Thanksgiving turkey. Oh, I had to wake up at 2 a.m. Yeah, the thing lit on fire or, well, it was time for dinner, but it was still raw inside. None of this is exactly encouraging, but NPR's Life Kit is here to help. Life Kit host Marielle Segura has a beginner's guide to roasting a turkey.
4: Okay, so it's the weekend before Thanksgiving, which means if you haven't bought a turkey, you need to buy it right now because you're gonna need time to thaw and season it. To figure out what size turkey you need, think about how many people are coming and how many sides you'll be serving. Lon Lamb, a senior editor at Cook's Illustrated, gave us this rule of thumb. A 10 to 12 pound bird, that's gonna serve eight to 10 people
3: with leftovers. And so, You can kind of get away with
4: something a little smaller if you're going to have a lot of sides. If you're serving a very large group, like at my family Thanksgivings, there can be 40 or 50 people, Lon says to get multiple turkeys and maybe ask a family member to bring one that's already cooked. For a small group, you could also get part of a turkey.
3: I have a colleague who did a really great recipe for a turkey crown that's where they take the legs off and so all you're serving is the breast
4: meat okay now alert frozen turkeys can take days to thaw in the fridge and that's the method the cdc recommends for food safety reasons you'll need to allot about 24 hours of thawing time for every four to five pounds of turkey and then tack on another day or two for seasoning so let's talk salt Two methods for beginners, brining and salt rubbing. Brining means submerging the bird in a mixture of water and table salt for 6 to 12 hours.
3: For every one gallon
4: of water, you're going to add half of a cup of table salt. Another option is to rub the turkey with salt. That's Lon's preferred method because it'll give you better browning. But it takes longer, one to two days.
3: I like to work with a kosher salt, and I'll use about a teaspoon of salt per pound of turkey.
4: She says you can put a third of the salt under the skin of the breast meat, a third in the cavity and a third on the legs. A quick note here, kosher salt is not the same thing as table salt. So your turkey is salted or brined.
3: The big day comes and you roast it.
4: Lan says roasting often takes three and a half to four hours, but it depends on how big the bird is. You will want to follow a recipe here. And for food safety purposes, you want to get the meat to 160 degrees. But the thighs taste better if you cook them to 170 or 175, and there are different ways to do that without drying out the breast. Some recipes will have you flip the turkey while it cooks. When you think the turkey is done, take a meat thermometer and identify the part of it that looks the thickest.
3: If you have the turkey so that the legs are pointing away from you and the breasts are pointing towards you, I like to kind of stick the thermometer straight in and kind of just watch the temperature. And what I'm looking for is the lowest temperature. And if that lowest temperature is 160, I'm good to go.
4: Then take it out of the oven and leave it alone for 30 to 45 minutes to let it cool and let the juices flow. After that, you'll carve it, enjoy your dinner, and let somebody else do the dishes. For NPR News, I'm Marielle Segara, and Happy Thanksgiving.
0: You know what? I'm going to add one more tip here. I say put some citrus in that brine, oranges, or orange juice. Think about it.
4: LifeCat has more
0: tips and tricks for your Thanksgiving meal, including one about cooking substitutions and another on how to carry on a family recipe. You can find those episodes at npr.org slash Ten years ago this week, I was covering politics for KQED, San Francisco's NPR member station. And as I tried to figure out what was happening at the Statehouse on Friday, November 15th, it was pretty hard to concentrate. The big day started at 10 a.m. when he left the Grand Hyatt in Union Square in his Batmobile there, a donated Lamborghini. From Union Square, he answered a call for help in Russian Hill. That's Cron 4 and, so and all the other local news stations were providing wall-to-wall coverage of a five-year-old kid dressed as Batman dashing around San Francisco, saving the day. Bat Kid. His name was Miles Scott, and he was battling leukemia. The Make-A-Wish Foundation had pulled out all the stops to grant him his wish to be a real-life superhero. Among his victories, Miles went on to foil a bank robbery and save a damsel in distress. Bat-Kid jumped into action. The Make-A-Wish Foundation helps kids battling critical illnesses reclaim moments of childhood by helping them live out moments of joy. But this particular effort took on a life of its own.
10: One of our volunteers put
3: into Facebook and Twitter and like wildfire,
0: just like it exploded. Thousands of people lined the streets to cheer Miles on. It was all over the national news.
5: San Francisco turned into Gotham City. All pretend. To make a little boy's wish come true.
2: Today this five-year-old is teaching an entire city what it means to be a superhero.
0: Real Batman were tweeting at him and sending messages of support, and even President Obama joined in. Way to go Miles, way to save Gotham. And Bat Kid today?
1: I'm doing amazing. I feel like that brings some hope.
0: Miles Scott is doing great. The Make-A-Wish Foundation posted clips of the now teenager reflecting on it all.
6: I liked all superheroes at the time, but I just kept coming back to Batman because Batman never really, like, fades away. He's always coming back.
0: These days it seems like baseball has replaced Batman a little bit when it comes to Miles' interests.